We turn in God's inspired word this evening to 1 John chapter 4. First John chapter 4. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. They are of the world, therefore speak they of the world, and the world heareth them. We are of God. He that knoweth God heareth us. He that is not of God heareth not us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and every one that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. Herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us, and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No man has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. Hereby know we that we dwell in him, and he in us, because he hath given us of his Spirit. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love. And he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. This evening, I call your attention to the 14th verse of 1 John 4, and we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world.
beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, the inspired apostle, in the text we consider this evening, is still breathing the language of love, the heart of the gospel. It's love that finds its source in God himself, who alone is love. And we've seen in the theme of this epistle that the very joy of the Christian life is found in fellowship that we have with God and with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's the joy of our life. In other words, the very essence of Christianity is found in God's covenant. That life of fellowship and love that characterizes God himself in his eternal triune existence and into which he's taken a people in Christ and given him, given them to enjoy that fellowship and that love. A people, let's remember, that he has chosen from eternity in Christ. To live in God's covenant is to abide in his love. And that life is confirmed and comes to expression by the love that we have and express not only toward God, but toward one another. This life is ours by the Spirit of Christ that dwells in us. It's the wonder of God's grace revealed in Christ Jesus, still being brought to expression by the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we saw in the last text that we considered, verses 7 through 11, and particularly verses 9 and 10, that the love of God was manifested toward us by sending his own Son into the world, his only begotten. And we saw, moreover, that the sending of his Son was to fulfill God's purpose that we might live through him. Life is fellowship with God. To live is to know God's love. It's to be taken into his fellowship, the fellowship of his own covenant life. And again, that life is ours only in Jesus Christ through the gift of God's own dear Son. Still more, we saw that the wonder of grace revealed in that gift of God to us, that amazing manifestation of his love, came to expression particularly in the work Christ accomplished in order that we might have life through him. Because in order that you and I would enter the presence of God himself, the Holy One, in order that he might embrace us and call us his children, the debt of sin had to be removed. Herein is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. 
Again, as the apostle goes on with this great gospel proclamation, he reminds us that we enjoy this salvation only by the work of Christ in his birth and death in our place, but also by his continued work. The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by his Holy Spirit. Moreover, that work of the Spirit is not a mere matter of feelings or experience, but it's a work by the Word. The Spirit works by means in the life of His people. That's the connection now to the text that we consider today. A text which speaks of the apostolic testimony the word of God, the testimony of the Holy Spirit to his apostles and through them to us. It's the testimony of God the Father sending his Son to be the Savior of the world. And to that testimony we give our attention this evening. The Savior of the world. We notice, first of all, who he is. Secondly, where he's from. And finally, the certainty of this truth. As we stand before the Christ of God and commemorate his incarnation, really, when we look at this text, we stand before him who's the Savior of the world, the Bible says. The Savior is the Son of God become flesh. The essential doctrine concerning Jesus of Nazareth always has two aspects, his person and his work. And because we cannot understand his work and the nature of his work until we're clear in understanding who he is, John immediately calls attention to the person of him whom we confess as our Savior. He's the Son of God. And no less than the Son of God could save us. We couldn't save ourselves. There's not a creature ever created that could accomplish that wonder that it took to save us. Our case was helpless and hopeless except for the wonder of God's grace. And we saw that in verses 9 and 10. It's a matter of emphasis throughout this entire section. God sent his Son into the world that we might live through him. That object of his perfect love in whom was all his delight is the one whom he sent. So we might say that God gave all that he had. He gave himself that we might be saved. And the importance of God sending his only begotten son is that it is only through him and in him that we can enjoy God's fellowship. For truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. Now, earlier in this chapter, John had written 
that the spirit of truth is that which confesses that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. Now he repeats that, which he had established earlier, namely that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. That is, Jehovah's salvation, our Savior, is the eternal Son of God who is in the from the bosom of the Father declares the wonder of grace, God's grace, in taking us into the fellowship of his own life and love. And he declares it by accomplishing that salvation. That's the revelation of God's love to us. So significant, therefore, is this truth that Jesus is the Son of God that the apostle will immediately state in the next verse, whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. This Son of God is our Savior. This is the only time John uses the term Savior in his entire epistle. He gives expression to the idea many times, of course, but this is the only time he uses this term, Savior. So what exactly does that mean? The term speaks of salvation. And it speaks of salvation by delivering one from a life-threatening danger. Now it's important to take a look at this for a moment because one of the great difficulties in our day is that people like to use Christian terminology in the words of Scripture while emptying those terms of their important biblical meaning. There are any number of theological terms today that in many circles have been emptied of their biblical meaning, given new meaning, suitable to new teachings and philosophy. It's one of the great threats imposed by heresies of various sorts. They sound good because they use biblical terms. They simply give old language new meaning. So there are many who talk about Christ as Savior, but who don't mean by that what the New Testament means. So when the text speaks of him as Savior, it doesn't mean merely that he is one who helps. It doesn't mean that he's one who teaches us what we ought to do and serves as our example with the desire that we do as he said. To use the term Savior that way with reference to our Lord Christ is to rob that term of its biblical meaning. That the Son of God is our Savior means that God sent Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, into this world to do something and that we are saved as the result of what he has done. And apart from our own action, and in spite of our own helplessness, his action has saved us, delivering us from the bondage of death. He has delivered us from the power of darkness, Colossians 1 verse 
13, and has reconciled us unto God from whom we had alienated ourselves. Still referring to Colossians 1. Now verse 22, in the body of his flesh and through death, he has presented us holy and unblameable and unreprovable in God's sight. Christ has done that. He has done the impossible. And when I say that he's done the impossible, I am merely stating what is evident from all Scripture, namely that our state and condition was such that we could not contribute a single thing to our salvation. To be the Savior of the world, he had to satisfy the demands that the law places upon guilty sinners. He had to satisfy God's justice by his perfect obedience, even to the death of the cross. That's right, when we stand before the wonder of God sending his Son into the world, when we stand before the wonder of the incarnation, we're compelled to stand before the cross. The two are inseparable. God sent his Son to be the Savior Which is to say, as we saw in verse 10, God sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He came, he was sent to give himself as an offering and a sacrifice in our place and on our behalf. But even that does not exhaust the idea of God sending his Son to be our Savior. The Spirit tells us, by the writer to the Hebrews, that our Savior entered heaven by his own blood. Hebrews 9 verse 12, Neither by the blood of bulls and of goats, but by by the blood of goats and of calves, but by his own blood he entered once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Not only did he appear before God to make payment for our sin by the sacrifice of his own blood, there to demand the freedom of the guilty and the release of the captives, but having obtained eternal redemption, he took his place at God's right hand there constantly to intercede on our behalf thus applying to us the salvation that he merited. That wonderful truth the Apostle John reminded us of in the first verse of chapter 2. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. As our Savior, he represents us before God. He always seeks our good and guarantees our eternal blessedness. And so his work as Savior continues. It isn't merely a matter of what he has accomplished. He continues his perfect work now by his Spirit. He saves us by coming to dwell in us by his Spirit. And here again, 
we are simply being reminded of some of the magnificent truths the inspired apostle has already established in his first epistle. God dwells with us and in us. The eternal Son of God continues his work in us by his Holy Spirit, filling us with his love, constantly, continuously drawing us into his fellowship and sanctifying us. So we live. We live. Christ our Savior living in us. So that we believe. Being also confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ, Philippians 1 verse 6. Now the Savior is very clearly described in the text as the Savior of the world. Clearly the world needed a Savior. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 3. And the judgment of God, as revealed in Psalm 14, is confirmed in Romans 3. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are all together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. The whole world lies in the bondage of sin and death. It's lost, perishing under the wrath of God. It needs one, therefore, to save them. For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. Luke 19, verse 10. Moreover, John repeats here what Jesus himself said to Nicodemus, as recorded in John's Gospel account, John 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God's love for the world compelled him to send his Son to be the Savior of that world. But what is meant by the world? What is meant by this reference to the Son of God being the Savior of the world? You know that any number of church people in our day would use this text to argue that Jesus died for everyone. He came to be the Savior for every individual in the world. After all, they they point to what Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 2 verse 4, that God our Savior will have all men to be saved. Well, first of all, Paul's reference to all men does not mean every individual head for head any more than it refers to men over against women. 
It's clear from the context that Paul is speaking of people from every class, every social class and status, all kinds, in other words. God will save not just the poor, he will save some who are rich. He will save not just a farmer, but a businessman and even a king, and so on. You see, the context reveals what Paul means with reference to all. But as we turn more specifically to the term world, we have to let Scripture itself define that term both by the context and the way the term is used elsewhere in the Bible. Clearly, the word world is as universal a term as can be used. And it would have been shocking to those who thought that salvation was only for the Jews. Or, more particularly, as thought many of the Pharisees, only for themselves. But while world is a universal term, The question is universal in what sense? Search the Bible, after all, and you find that the the word world has many different connotations, including, as we already saw in 1 John 2, verses 15 and 16, the totality of corruption, the world as the embodiment of sin, That term can even refer to the totality of the ungodly, even the reprobate ungodly, who are not and shall not be saved. And that's certainly the reference in John 17, where Jesus says, I pray not for the world, but for those whom thou hast given me, for they are thine. And if we continue to examine the concept as we find it used in Scripture, we find that that term world, while indeed speaking of a totality, can never be replaced merely by the phrase every individual head for head. Rather, it speaks of a totality of a particular sphere to be determined by the context and by its use in the rest of the Bible. Here in 1 John 4, verse 14, it ought to be evident from the context that this term world, of which Christ is the Savior, does not include the many false prophets of verse 1, nor every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh, of verse 3, nor they of the world, in verse 5, who are contrasted with we who are of God. Scripture never presents God as sending his Son to save everyone. You remember from Matthew 1, verse 21, God told Joseph, Thou shalt call his name Jesus, 
for he shall save his people from their sins. So that when the text says God sent his son to be the savior of the world, the reference is first of all to the elect whom God has chosen in Christ from eternity. But that doesn't provide the complete answer. Because we have to acknowledge that the Spirit could have inspired John to refer to to the elect or to those who believe. And while the term world indeed refers to God's elect, nevertheless, there's a broader connotation in that term just as it's found in John 3 verse 16. The term is cosmos, which refers to an orderly, harmonious system, an organism. Speaks not merely of individuals, but of an organism, a beautiful, creative work of God, all fitting together in perfect harmony. You know that I've often used the the Bible's illustration of a plant to illustrate this idea. If, for example, you, you take a tree as representative of the world, you realize that in that tree, as the creative handiwork of God, there's a beautiful structure where many different parts of that tree come to expression in the entire tree. When that tree is young, a man might prune that tree and cut off branches that are dead or do not serve the beauty or shapeliness of that tree, but the tree remains a tree. So with the world that God looks upon in his love. The world is not just the elect race, but the entire creation as it shall appear in perfect harmony in its heavenly beauty, united in the Son of God forever. Colossians 1 verses 19 and 20. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell, and having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him, I say, whether they be things in heaven or things in earth. That world, being in the bondage of corruption and groaning and travailing in pain together until now, shall be delivered by the Savior of the world. That's the truth of Romans 8, verses 19 and following, as well as the fulfillment of the promise God gave to Noah in Genesis chapter 9, as he revealed his covenant embracing the whole creation. God so loved that world. And so John writes, and we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And though many individuals are lost, many branches cut off and destroyed, that doesn't mean the world is destroyed. The world is saved by him 
who is the Savior of that world. Proceeding now to my second main point, the text emphasizes that this Savior of the world is sent by the Father. Our salvation is entirely of divine origin. We had no plan by which we would be extricated from this life-threatening, life-destroying misery into which we had plunged ourselves. Indeed, as the Bible reveals, we had no desire even to be saved. Apart from God giving us eyes to see, we had no knowledge of what, from what we must be saved. And so it's not a matter of our seeking that salvation, but the triune God as the father of his people out of free love and sovereign mercy, according to the purpose which he purposed in himself, sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. That purpose is proclaimed widely in Scripture, already in the Old Testament, beginning in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. He would save his people from their sins by sending the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. He would send his Son to be the Savior of the world. So we read of his prophetic word to his servant, the Messiah, in Isaiah 49, verse 6. And he said, It is a light thing that thou shouldst be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles that thou mayest be my salvation unto the ends of the earth. Well, that speaks of you and me, you understand. That speaks of our place in that world that the Son of God came to save. God sent his Son as a Savior, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But if you look carefully at the text, you will see that the focus of the text is not on the Savior. It's on God who sent that Savior. God saves us by His Son. But the emphasis is this. God saves. God saves us. When we think about the incarnation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we ought to think not just of that baby in the manger. Our attention ought to be directed to God Himself. We rejoice in our fellowship with Him and declare without hesitation there is none in all the universe so worthy of our praise. The text reminds us that the glory of the Son is in the Father whose love He reveals. 
So as we look to Christ, even as we saw in the last text that we considered, we're pointed to the fountain of Father's love from which He was sent so that our great salvation finds its source in God Himself, in His eternal purpose, His everlasting love, His covenant mercy in the Son of God. We see the great secret of God so loving the world. The origin of that love is not found in the church, not found in us. His love gave origin to the salvation of His church. Jesus coming in Bethlehem's manger and His work of saving the world was not that which secured God's love to sinners. God, the triune God and Father of His eternally chosen people in Christ, loved the church long before He tore His Son from His side to save her. When we stand before Bethlehem and the mercy of God sending us His only begotten Son, we must see that every step Jesus took from the cradle to His death was to accomplish God's purpose and the wonder of our salvation so that Jesus could say in John 10, verse 30, I and my Father are one. As He travailed in the sorrows of His flesh, He could say, I and my Father are one. He was doing the will of His Father. The Savior of the world is sent from the very bosom of the Father. We stand before Jesus, people of God, and we stand before the gospel every Lord's Day. We have to see the infinite, the eternal, the inexhaustible love of God for us in Christ Jesus. Do you wonder at that unspeakable gift? Let us contemplate these words. We have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. When Jesus Christ is your elder brother, and therefore you live in closest fellowship with Him, you're linked by Him to the eternal I Am. God the Father is your Father and your friend. That's life eternal. And the knowledge of these things is the fullness of joy. 
Let every thought of Jesus, therefore, be connected with the thoughts of the eternal, ever-blessed God. Let your joy be in the God of your salvation. The certainty of this truth is the divine testimony borne by the apostles. And we have seen and do testify, John says, of this wonder of grace. He speaks here of the apostolic witness and testimony, his inspired testimony. They had seen the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ. They had seen Christ, God in the flesh. They had seen his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. They had seen him with their earthly eyes. They witnessed his works and miracles. They had been with him as he taught the people and opened the Old Testament scriptures. They had also seen him in his suffering and dying though at the time they understood it not. Still more, they had seen him after he had risen from the dead. They witnessed the divine testimony of his exaltation, and they had seen him taken from them as he ascended up into heaven, after he had testified to them that he would send them the Comforter, his Spirit, who would abide in them and with them forever. The, the spirit of truth. But more especially, since the fulfillment of that promise and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, they had seen all these things with the spiritual understanding. So they testified. As eyewitnesses of his majesty, they made known to us the power and coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And they did so, not only by their preaching, but by that which they wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. They testified boldly, in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And they did so because they didn't come with their own opinions. They preach God's word. They testified in truth that the Father sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. And so you and I are bound to receive that word as it comes from God Himself. To believe is to lay hold of of this apostolic witness and testimony. Here we stand before the truth of the absolute and ultimate authority of the Scripture. We believe because of the witness of the Holy Spirit through the Word, the Word being born by the witness and testimonies of the apostles. But that testimony is embraced by us only by the Holy Spirit's work in us. 
Indeed, because the spirit of the exalted Christ has taken up residence in our hearts. Some might say, sure wish we had the evidence the apostles did. Wish we had been there. If only we had seen, then we could be sure. But understand, there were thousands who saw the Son of God in the flesh, who witnessed his miracle, who heard his word, and turned away hating him because of the truth that he spoke. We believe the testimony of the apostles because of the work of his Holy Spirit in our hearts, not otherwise. And having been given eyes to see and ears to hear the truth of our salvation, we see Jesus in a far more wonderful way than did those who lived when he walked on earth. We have the fullness of the Spirit. We now hear his voice as he speaks to us by his word. Has not the Spirit come and given life to you who were dead? Has he not come and pointed you to your Savior? Even giving you eyes by which you see him? Has not the Spirit of the exalted Christ comforted and guided you. If you know the operations of the Holy Spirit, you've seen that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. You stand in awe. You know because He has given us His apostles to see and to testify of that which they saw and heard. So we say with the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 9 and 10, But as it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit, For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. So we glorify God. So we stand in awe at His love, revealed in sending His only begotten Son to be the Savior of the world. And we desire more and more to live in the fellowship of Him and His Son, Jesus Christ, because therein is our joy, now and forever. Amen. Father, we thank Thee for bringing us once again before the wonder work of Thy grace and the wonder of our salvation. Father, we pray that with grateful hearts we might go forth now strengthened by that gospel 
to take up our labors and other activities of the week that lies before us, to express our thankfulness to Thee, and to live to Thy name's honor and glory. For Jesus' sake, amen.